Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Today, we are going to be taking you down the literary gun barrel for the first time in a long while, Josh. Yeah, uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at uh, not a Bond film or a non-Bond film or a historical figure and also sans uh, Jeffrey. Uh, we are going to be looking at a Bond novel. Now, of course, the Fleming novels ran their course after The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, Ian Fleming passed away, and that was all the posthumous work, plus some short stories that were left to publish. So the first of many came along of uh, Bond novelists to take up the reins of Fleming, and the first of these was Kingsley Amis, writing as Robert Markham. So we're going to be taking on the first and last book by Kingsley Amis regarding Bond. And this is Colonel Sun. That's right. Colonel Sun, published in 1968. It is um, uh, Kingsley Amis's only Bond novel, but he did write a couple of years before that, just a year after Fleming's the death. The Guide to he Bond or something write, like that, right? Uh, that's right, the James Bond dossier, which was an academic and a literary deconstruction of the character, sort of his motivations, his uh, his penchants for you know clothing and 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 sexuality, right. stuff like that. It, it's qu quite an interesting story, and I think one that situated Amos uh, quite favorably for taking on the mantle of post Bond adventure writing. You can also see, I think, his ambitions for uh, a Bond novel and a series going forward in that dossier as well. Just um, mm -hmm. just reading yeah. myself about it and what you told me about it, uh, and having read Colonel Sun, I can definitely see those ambitions present in, this, in the uh, writing. Yeah, I don't know, and if anyone that, remembers, but. I did indeed. And if anyone remembers our earlier Literary Gun Barrel episodes, I mean, they're all available. You can go back and check them out on we the do. Fleming Stories. Uh, we did quote from the James Bond dossier a few times, and I would definitely, uh, definitely encourage readers and Bond fans to pick up a copy of that if they haven't already, because it is a good read, and it's a very respectful and 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 you know respectful is a, a stupid word, Josh. Really, what I, I what I guess I mean to say is that it it's an effort to legitimize the Bond character and to give the genre uh, some heft and some some literary merit. And Amos is no schlock writer. Um, no. He knows his stuff. He he knows how to work. He knows how to write. And um, yeah, when he picked up the Fleming character at the end or in the mid 60s, uh, he did some interesting things with it. And as the continuation novels continue, we hope to bring you more of literary gun barrel episodes. We know that there's a whole world out there. Now, Josh, yeah, I've read, got, like, I've read John a few. Gardner. I've read a few. Mm -hmm. John Gardner, yeah. I read Sebastian his License Falks. to Kill adaptation. Mm hmm. Well, I'm glad we've decided to do this one, Josh, because after our Fleming series ended, um, this was this has kind of been the the elephant in the room, I guess, with respect to our literary adventures. Because on our on our other podcast, uh, Lighting the Pipes, we read mystery and thriller stories, and we review all sorts of different uh, spy stories. But this was the first time we had taken a non-Fleming Bond on, at least for the sake of review. Uh, I've read a couple, and I know you've read a couple yourself, but I think I'm going to make a concerted effort now, starting with Colonel Sun, to uh, to kind of chisel my way through them uh, in sequence, and chronology. And whether you hey. jump on board and do these episodes with me or not, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to do them, regardless, I think, whether of whether or not you're, um, you're on I'm board. A, but I'm, I'm, I would say I'm on the I'm really glad of something like that. I'm really pleased that you joined on with this one, because you weren't at first uh, signed on, were you? Well, it was just sort of like 
you kind of just like dropped it on my doorstep like you're doing this, right? So I'm one, I'm one of those people. No, that, I did not. I did, I did yeah. not say that. I, I didn't drop it on your door and say, you're doing it. I said, do you want to do it? And you said, fuck it. Yes, I'll do it. That's dropping on my doorstep. But then after mm-hmm. some reflection, after some, you know, breathing exercises and, <laughs> and, and, and whatnot, uh, then, you know, I think about it and then it becomes a, a good idea. And, and mm-hmm. then I usually go along. Well, I, I'm glad that you've joined me on this adventure. Yeah, that was a because incredible it, digression, by the way. I do apologize to a reader that's all right. go through that. But you did ask we, the we question. We can sort that out. And you did bring it up, I so yes. that's on you. Yeah. And, I, I, would, um, I would rather, you know, you'd be tortured by that as opposed to, you know, what happens to Bond down in uh, Colonel Sun's cellar, so. <laughs> yeah, well, let's not give too much away just yet. We should probably say a, a little bit about the publication of Colonel Sun. All this information yes. is out there, so we, we'll, we'll be really quick in, in summarizing this stuff. It was published on the 28th of March, 1968. Um, it was published by Jonathan Cape, who had produced, uh, who had published all of Fleming's Bond novels. Kingsley Amos was uh, just a really well-known, uh, a very well-known political figure, but uh, a sir. He was knighted in uh, 1960. What year was he knighted? With the name Kingsley Amos, you better be a sir. If if not, you're, I don't know. You've some wasted sort of like, your life. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have not met the potential that you were given at birth, if, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, uh, oh, he was shortlisted for the Booker Prize three times. Um, yeah, and uh, in 2008, the Times ranked Kingsley Amos 13th on its list of 50 greatest British writers since 1945. So, yeah, I mean, this, this guy isn't a schlock writer. He's got chops. Um, very well you known. In fact, he, by him? I uh, have not. I have not. I've read things by Martin Amos, though, his son. I've read things by Martin Amos. I've read Yellow Dog. I was... Uh, I had to read, uh, what's the other one I had to read? Oh, um, his mem- his memoir, what's it, Time? No, not Time Zero, that's a novel. Uh, ex- experience. Also a Star Trek experience. Next Generation episode. Yeah. What, Time Zero? Time Zero, yeah, it's a Star Trek The Next Generation yeah, cool. episode. Season six premiere, they go oh, back nice. in time, and uh, back to like yeah. New Orleans, like in the 1800s, 1860s, around Civil War mm, time. Cool. Anyways, uh, it features... Uh, they run into the Enterprise team. Runs into Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, and he is oh, annoying. Yes. He's portrayed by Jerry Hardin. Now, if you know the X Files, Jerry Hardin played Deep Throat. Uh, sure did. And he has his. At first, it's a really good impression of Mark Twain, but it grates uh-huh. on your nerves very quickly. So by the time of that, like two or three parter, I'm like, shut up. Like, just shoot him on the bridge in front of Mulder, like, right now. Just shoot him right now. That's kind of how I felt about it. Anyways, that was a digression, but you mentioned... Uh, time Zero. Time Zero, and I just had to go to that geek direction. So thank you for giving me time for that. Let's go back to your Kingsley Amos thing. Well, there's, there's not really much of a thing here at all, buddy. I just wanted to say that Kingsley Amos um, is a well-known writer in the British tradition. Uh, he wrote a number of influential texts, three times nominated for the Booker Prize and was knighted as well for his works and contributions to the arts and culture of the United Kingdom. And, you know, it's interesting. He was a fan of the Bonds, the Bond novels, enough so that he would go away and write the nonfiction Bond dossier. But Colonel Sun is an interesting story, Josh, because, you know, in, in it, it, it comes four years after Fleming's death and 
it brings into the story, it introduces this third um, global threat or villain, if I can say that. The Cold War changes somewhat yes. to make room. The, I should say the, the, old, the old Soviet uh, West divide it's makes sort of a bit of room on the beach. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And it makes and room for a third threat. Of course, which is at the time, I guess, it was on people's minds, you know, uh, because of what's going on in Vietnam and whatnot, and also after the Cultural Revolution. Um, of course, the big, the new big bad on the horizon is uh, Red China, and uh, I mm-hmm. think that's what they wanted. What Kingsley Amos wanted to bring into this story was that was that element. Now, it is interesting though that the Bond films brought in the Red Chinese as well into some of their stories, like Goldfinger. That's right. And uh, they were behind behind other operations as well, if I'm not mistaken. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, but Kingsley Amis is, is now saying that, I guess, the real threat on the horizon is coming from the East, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was asking myself, yeah, was it a prognostication of sorts that he was trying to tap into in writing? Or was this like a racial bias? Who, I mean, who can who can say for sure? But yes. Fleming wasn't without his racial biases either. So I think we have to, you know, call a spade a spade here. Oh, of course. Yes, absolutely. I mean, live and let die is point of, is point of sale of that. So. Uh, so the book, the book was reviewed pretty well. Uh, I think lukewarm would be fair to say. Um, I don't. I don't think that after Fleming's death, um, there was an immediate rush to sort of you know make Bond live again on the page. Um, and I Where do he would think have that a cinematic was, afterlife more so than anything. So that's exactly right. I mean, it, the, the series of films was really just getting started. And so uh, people weren't craving more Bond stories. Although, in fairness, after Goldfinger and Thunderball, particularly Thunderball, where this worldwide explosion of interest came into Bond, became a phenomenon, people probably would have been content hungry. So uh, Colonel Sun does hit shelves at the right time in 1968. Connery has just left the role. Right. Um, and, you know, the publications were lukewarm towards it, uh, some kinder than others. Um, I know, I think... You can you can go and find a lot of these reviews online because unlike the work that we've seen in our Sherlock Holmes episode, there's a lot more uh, contemporary literary criticism for the Bond books that's available than, than there was for like the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes or something similar. I bet, yeah, definitely. Uh, but um, the Times Literary Supplement uh, did not like this story very much. Was unimpressed with the novel, calling Bond a chuckle-headed imposter whose arthritic thought processes would be a liability in a tussle down at the pub. And uh, The Guardian, um, reviewed by Malcolm Bradbury, called the novel a reasonable read, but no more. It wasn't vintage Fleming nor vintage Amos. So feeling that both Fleming and Amos had done better things in the past. Uh, Bradbury also noted that the story lacked a convincing rhetoric and that the traditional Fleming frissons emerged only in muted form. And I think that's something we could probably pick up on in our own discussion when we get mm. there. Maurice Richardson, who we quoted quite a bit when we did the first literary gun barrel series through Fleming's work, uh, thought that as being judged as a thriller, the novel is vigorous and is exciting. It's a bit disorderly and a bit labored, uh, but went on to say that some of the action is quite well done and a little more preposterous than in the later Flemings. Now, I'm not really so sure that that's true, Maurice. Did he read the I book I might or have not? to take you... 
I might have to take you to task on that because it's pretty straight and direct, I think, the action in this one. But we'll see. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the New York Times noted that um, the reduction of gadgets that were in the story, particularly when compared with the films, which were quite hot, as we just said, kind of overshadowed the personality of the secret agent. And here, Mr. Amos has given Bond back to the readers, which is which is a positive comment, really, isn't yes. it? Uh, stripping away some of the some of the silliness of the films, or at more least superhuman the, aspects of him. Yes, exactly. Thank you. That's a better way of saying it. And kind of returning Bond back to the readers. It's it's interesting from the New York Times. Um, there are other writers, of course, who commented on this, and you can check them all out online. Um, just as a starting point, if you don't want to go deep dive in these reviews like we have, you can just check out the Wikipedia page, and I'm sure that, that has five or six of them there for you, so you can have a look. It's always a good starting point. And I'll tell you what's right and what's wrong, and then you can go out and see what's false about it all. <laughs> anyway, but Josh, look, buddy, I'm I'm really pleased that we're doing this. I'm I'm happy to be reading a Bond book again. It's been fun after for so after so long. Now Anthony Horowitz has got the mantle right now, and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to to digging into Horowitz. I've read his Alex Ryder books, um, which some well, people I think correctly call. Moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he well, yeah, he does those so. But uh, yeah, Horowitz is, is, is apparently just knocking these out of the park. So I'm really excited to see what he's done with the modern Bond character or Bond in the modern world. Interesting. And uh, yeah, I did read Sebastian Falk's Devil May Care and I did read a John Gardner story as well. I think I, I, think uh, I recalled, I, I, I gave you Devil May Care. I think I got it for you for a Chris Present or something like that. I, th- I think you did, buddy. I think you did. Yeah. Anyway, I enjoyed that one as well. But today we're here to talk about Colonel Sun, so uh, enough said in, in preamble. Let's um, bypass any more information about the author, any more information about the uh, okay. publication, and, and we'll get straight King, to it. King so, Cleamis, Josh, he seems like an interesting fella. Check him out uh, if you have any other books. I think he wrote also a lot of nonfiction political stances, too. He sure uh, did, yes. Yeah. Very interesting. We, and we did point to our story, too, no. is that there's definitely some political influences uh, clear in the text as well, so historiographical as well absolutely we we have glossed over kingsley amos i think quite a bit but that that's okay um i'm just trying to think i think we we uh need what we need to say about him what i have a question for you though is and this goes back Mm -hmm. to the bond films when i heard the term colonel sun i instantly thought of colonel moon in uh die another day sure you know yeah who Uh becomes of course through dna surgery (laughs) uh Mm -hmm. gustav graves (laughs) So, That's right. Yeah, and also things that I, I thought as well, like the torture sequence. I kept I couldn't help but think of Waltz's Blofeld torturing Daniel Craig's Bond Inspector. So that also, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and your yeah. summary, you know, picks that up. So we cut on to that as well. Yeah, there are aspects of this book that have been uh, picked up on by future Bond films and production teams and writers, and they have uh, they've used and exploited them. And in fact, Spectre is uh, credits Amos's family, I think, uh, for for this uh, or for his estate because they right. recognize that some of the torture stuff has come from here. Yeah, the, the sharp dialogue and whatnot. But yeah, you're right. There's some die another day vibes in here. We've also got some for your eyes only vibes in here too. Greece, um, but. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. I've prepared Josh a, a summary, as you say, and that's it's a long summary. So if uh, anyone listening right now is uh, just keen to get our scores and to get on with their day, then you can fast forward about twenty five minutes because um, 
Yeah, I put a lot into this summary. If uh, if you want a refresh of the story, then sit back, relax. I'm I'm going to share that with you. But if you know Colonel Sunwell and you just want to get to the score, then skip yourself ahead 25 minutes and meet you on the other side. Although we don't recommend it, do we, buddy? No, I listened to the whole thing. It's great how we... I, I, I already heard it. So this is a pre-recording, just so you know, guys. It's not within the podcast we're doing live right now <laughs> That's right, yeah. at the moment. It's, yeah. it's inserted in there. So I've heard it myself. I think it's really great. Come back after you're done and uh, we'll suss out Colonel Sun and see what he's all about. Enjoy. Colonel Sun opens in early autumn a year following events in The Man with the Golden Gun, which ended with Bond having been shot by Scaramanga's Derringer in the abdomen. 007 and Chief of Staff Bill Tanner are playing golf at Sunningdale New Course. Bond feels he's losing his touch, getting soft, despite having recovered from his injuries a year previously. As if to reassure the reader that this adventure won't be a dull one or spent harboring injury, Tanner mouthpieces for us, You're in better shape than I've seen you for years. Still, Bond feels that he's falling into a routine, which is, for secret agents, about as retiring and dangerous a habit as one can present. Tanner shrugs off Bond's worry at the bar, but Bond's routine has been too convenient for too long. Unbeknownst to both men, they're being watched by a man in sunglasses with pale blue eyes and dull black hair. We learn that he's been trailing Bond for nearly six weeks and is part of a larger design. That design becomes a little clearer when Bond heads to M's residence, quarterdeck, as he has been doing weekly since M took ill earlier that winter with bronchial congestion. Upon arrival, Bond finds the home infiltrated and himself in the company of an armed man who orders him into M's bedroom. There, he sees his boss, drugged and unconscious, slumped in a chair by his bedside. A doctor, Lohman, is present to administer the drugging. Two other men soon enter the house, one being Bond's quiet observer from the golf course. They instruct Bond to cooperate while they plan to drug him painlessly. It's clear that both he and M are component prizes in whatever grander scheme has been hatched. When Bond refuses, the men predictably approach him with a gun and a hypodermic needle. Bond races his mind to make sense of things, and he recognizes the inherent contradiction of threatening to maim him while at the same time trying to ensure his life remains safe through the drugging. Weighing the options and sensing his advantage, Bond remembers a stubborn M having earlier refused to fit new latches on his windows. He rolls the dice on this otherwise ephemeral point and bursts out of the house over the balustrade and across the garden into the trees. However, in the melee of the conflict before, prior to escape, Bond was pricked with the hypodermic. He loses consciousness in the wood, very near the road that he was hoping to reach. His pursuers stop short of finding him, and one of the men, with a thin face, is reprimanded with a knowing look by the leader. Bond wakes up in a police station, under the supervision of Dr. Allison, Sergeant Hassett, and Constable Rag. He'd been brought in by a motorist who found him wandering. Slowly, Bond comes to, and it isn't long before his name drop of Admiral Sir Miles Messervy legitimizes his position. 
His call to London Airport security officer Spence further solidifies the seriousness of this matter. M has been kidnapped. The network immediately sets to action. Bond and Tanner return to quarterdeck to ascertain what they can. The thin-faced man has been shot gruesomely in the head, his features all but unidentifiable. Obvious punishment by his superior for a sloppy job. However, Petty Officer Hammond, M's friend and assistant, along with his loving wife, have also been shot by the assailants, keen to remove any potential trace of their presence. Bond feels remorse and sadness at this, recognizing that he neglected to thank or better acquaint himself to M's loyal staff since he fell ill. 007's reflection is cut short, however, when Tanner re-enters the room and reveals that service allies from the airport confirm that M and his kidnappers left on Aer Lingus Flight 147A to Shannon, Ireland. Now, with the exception of Bond's escape, the whole operation appears to have been executed expertly and without a hitch. With a three-hour head start, the perpetrators will likely have reached an isolated inlet of Ireland's coastline and travelled from there further afield. Inspector Crawford, described by Amos as, quote, a tall, saturnine man in his 40s, whom Bond had immediately taken to, helps Bond and Tanner work through some final details at quarterdeck before heading to London to attend a meeting with Assistant Commissioner Valance of Scotland Yard and Minister in Charge Sir Ranald Rideout. In London, Bond struggles to keep his brain from hurting during the debrief. Sir Ranald, meanwhile, is also hurting, but more from irritation than fatigue or drugging. He's frustrated by the early morning inconvenience, and privately thinks that M is too old and reckless to be in power, almost inviting something like this to have occurred. He grills his apolitical subordinates with equal indifference, but luckily, Inspector Crawford is on the mark and working hard enough for Bond and Tanner. He suggests that they take a closer look at the names and numbers found scribbled in the pockets of the dead man left behind. Noticing a Greek connection, Crawford deduces that they could be the names of Greek women, and the numbers could correspond to a large exchange, possibly from within a city. Assistant Commissioner Valance, no stranger to Bond fans, being active in no less than six Fleming stories since his introduction in 1955's Moonraker, encourages this line of thought as Crawford continues to hypothesize. From his deductions, the group begins to acknowledge the possibility of these women being proffered or made available like escorts on the merit of a final clue written on a sheet which reads, If Supplies Fail. Tanner voices the likelihood of this being a plant or at least a lure for Bond, and if M's kidnappers didn't want to be followed, they'd neither have left the body at quarterdeck nor allowed for the scraps of clues to be left in the pockets. A soft bell rings in our ears, or at least those of us familiar with From Russia With Love, where a similar bait move motivates Bond's involvement in that greater plot. Bond reckons that they'll not need to worry about where to start with their Greek search. Athens will be as good as any other large center. He fully expects the group behind M's abduction, and his would-be abduction, will be looking for him. Cut to the fictional island of Rakonisi, 30 miles northeast of Santorini, in the Aegean, a largely uninhabited volcanic rock. There, posing as holiday maker, sits Colonel Sun Liang Tan of the Special Activities Committee, People's Liberation Army. Amos wastes no time in decorating Colonel Sun with the influence and the fearsomeness of previous great Bond villains. A top interrogator during the Korean War, Colonel Sun got to know the British very well through his work for the North Korean Army and is now doing his part for the communist cause 
by taking out Western targets and hatching plots to remove the decadence of democracy from the face of the world. He sits and waits on this Greek island for the rest of his party to arrive. But he's not waiting alone. With him are two attractive women, Donnie Madden and Luisa Tartini. Both women are also waiting for guests to arrive. Donnie is Albanian and Luisa is Italian, but they share similar forged documents. Their job, in addition to owning the Friends on Holiday performance, is to give pleasure to the men who will be arriving soon. It's not long before a boat arrives and M is brought up to the house. He's gained some of his momentum back over the last 30 hours, and he musters up enough ribald defense to refuse the colonel an easy go of it. From what we already know, M will be interrogated to give up secrets that will help strengthen the communist machine. Sun is informed by the arriving group that Bond escaped, but they set a plan to reclaim him. As for the ladies, both are instructed to serve two of the men who brought M ashore, the men who infiltrated Quarterdeck and took him, and almost Bond, from England. One of the men, de Graff, appears particularly ruthless. He chooses Louisa, who is frightened by the prospect of intimacy with him. Donny senses this and convinces de Graff to take them both, playing on his lust as a means to protect her friend. Amos is leading us into familiar territory here, not just with the from Russia with love feels, but also we sense that Skyfall, years later with the character of Severin, may have borrowed a darkened flavor or two from this narrative's presentation of sex work and organized crime. As night falls on Vraconisi, Bond rests in the seedy grandeur of the Grand Bretagne Hotel in Athens. His mission is fairly simple, as established by Bill Tanner, himself, and heads of Station G in both London and Greece. Get caught and find M. Discover as much about the enemy as possible along the way up the echelons. He is knowingly taking the bait, so his regular room, 706, will do just fine. He'd be observed and followed as closely as possible, at least by plants from Stuart Thomas, a Welshman and head of Section G in Athens. In the hotel bar, Bond meets with what he thinks is the lure's first cast, an attractive Greek woman being heavied over by a strong Turkish fellow. Bond plays along, activates, dispatches the man, and puts himself willingly into the trap, which opens up with Ariadne Alexandru. Or at least, that's what he thinks. They leave the hotel together, and they dine above the Acropolis. Both characters, particularly Ariadne, wish things could be different, but the job is the job. After a dinner of crayfish and lamb cutlets, Bond and Ariadne visit the Parthenon, where they are intercepted by two men. However, Ariadne does not recognize the men sent to collect Bond, and she dramatizes a conflict, encouraging Bond to participate. They escape the two men and head to a safe house run by her chief, Gordienko. There, Bond learns that instead of being part of the kidnapping plot, Ariadne is actually a Greek communist, part of the Soviet intelligence network, or the GRU. Their own intel informed them of Bond's arrival into Athens, and they wanted to capture him themselves, based on his exploits against them in previous adventures. Though their intentions were originally antagonistic, Gordienko recognizes the superior threat facing them by this third party, once Bond tells him what he's doing in Greece, and the sides agree to pool resources and work together. This is somewhat unfamiliar territory for Bond readers, but very interesting. The first fulsome time that the old Cold War nations come together against a new third party. They've barely time to catch their breath, however, 
before a gunfight at the safe house starts up, motivated by the arrival of Colonel Sun's recovery team, who were tipped off by a traitor in Gordienko's Greek communist network. Gordienko and his associate, Zimas, are killed in the firefight, but Bond and Ariadne escape and gain cover at a friend's tenement. There, they give in to their lust and sleep together. The next morning, Bond attempts to make contact with Stuart Thomas, but discovers that the station's cover, a little bookshop, has been set ablaze, and Thomas was nowhere to be seen, presumed fled, or worse, dead. Sun was removing all obvious support links that Bond might have turned to for help. Ariadne convinces Bond that they must move quickly in order to interrupt the events which Gordienko's intelligence network has been building dossier on. She says that a sea voyage awaits them, and she knows a man who can help. Enter into the story Nico Litsas, and with him, the plot's stabilizing trajectory. Litsas was a World War II resistance fighter and a close friend of Ariadne's father. He is an experienced fighter and an honest, hard-working Greek man in a world which fails to live up to his expectations of the same. At first, Litsas is reticent about involving himself in a secret, dangerous conflict involving Soviet interests. Bond's integrity and sincerity are worth a lot, but he only agrees to lend his support fully when Ariadne tells him of von Richter's involvement. Introduced to readers as the Butcher of Capuzona, von Richter terrorized villages and murdered local innocents during his work for the Nazis some years before. He has returned to Greece and is in league with whatever third party threatens this conference. Though their political philosophies differ, Litsas holds Ariadne in esteem and agrees to help her and Bond, his interest fueled now by thoughts of revenge against von Richter. Litsas is a weathered sea dog, but has the fitness, the wits, and the resourcefulness to make plans come to life. The three unlikely allies set out for Vrakanisi aboard the Altair, Litsas's 50-foot cruiser, propelled by the reliable Mercedes engine, which doesn't fail to catch Bond's notice and naval approval. Also aboard is Yanni, a youth of about 16 who will support the mission until things get dangerous, at which time Litsas will pay him and set him ashore. It is at this point in the story that Ariadne's secret communist intel of a detente summit on Vrakanisi blends with Bond's experience and M's kidnapping to reveal a more fulsome purpose. Some sort of attack on this conference is in the works, Bond heavily suspects the Chinese as a third party, and M and Bond will presumably be framed for the job, thereby bringing global conflict a step closer to chaotic realization. They move forward toward Vrakanisi, fully expecting to be intercepted, engaged and or apprehended. However, they have made plans aboard the Altair, and they have an arsenal with which to alter the odds somewhat. After intelligence is shared, and characters all have as close to a fair, full hand as can be expected, sex and sleep on the open ocean commence for Bond and Ariadne again. But it isn't long before Yanni wakes Bond up. Ahead of them in the water, another boat is floating, claiming to have lost its engines and is requesting a tow. Unable to blow their own cover, Litsas agrees and plays the part, but Bond quietly swims under cover of darkness to determine whether their claims are legit. He sneaks aboard, observes from a distance the attack starting, and knows for sure it's the aggressor that they had been expecting. After knifing one guard from behind, Bond drops grenades into the engine room and jumps overboard. The cruiser becomes a burning wreck, and Bond is brought back aboard the Altair. In the fight, 
Bond learns that young Yanni, despite his utmost hopes, got involved and stabbed one of the enemy. He shows a moral shade toward Yanni's future, and we're reminded of his sickness towards killing, no matter how just or official it might be. We then meet Colonel General Igor Arensky of the KGB, already situated at Vrakonisi and awaiting the beginning of the summit. He is partly a foil in the story, showcasing the difference between the bureaucratic Soviet communists of the USSR and the more active branch represented by Ariadne and Gordienko. He is also necessary, of course, because Ariadne will need to meet with him, communist to communist, and share her story. She and Yanni approach the island in a small dinghy. After checking on her credentials, Arensky welcomes her up and hears her story and her belief that the summit is in grave danger from a third party, likely a Chinese threat. Arensky dismisses Ariadne as a seductive temptress and a fool, and though mildly pleased with her loyalty, he suspects that she's at risk of being manipulated by Bond's romantic ideals. But apart from all of this, James Bond is a well-known figure to Arensky and a KGB, given, of course, his resume of involvement over the years. The same resume that attracted Gordienko and Ariadne in the first place when he arrived in Greece. As if a prize, then, has just fallen into his lap, the Colonel General grows excited by the prospect of capturing this valuable asset for his own benefit. Recognizing this, and the danger she could be in, were she to fight her points more strongly, Ariadne plays instead the part of dutiful agent, promising to engineer Bond's willing visit to Arensky. One thing does bother the Colonel General as Ariadne leaves, however, and that has to do with why no Soviet intelligence was shared with him about Bond's arrival in the area. Though they are not identical in philosophy, Gordienko and Arensky are not enemies. Their intel should have been similar. The answer, of course, comes back to Gordienko and his fear of a traitor inside his network. The same figure who let Sun's men onto the location of the safe house back on the mainland, leading to Gordienko's death, is also behind the stories about defective transmitters and unfortunate timings now being fed to, and swallowed by, Colonel General Arensky when he calls up investigating why he didn't know about Bond's arrival. Arensky's better judgment is duped and assaged. As it turns out, he's also gay, a feature which characterizes him with predatory otherness and makes us associate heterosexuality as heroic in the same tired, tropey way that previous Bond villain writing has been. There's an ambiguous villainy to Arensky, an indifference to the bigger schemes of chess going on around him, but we sense that his penchant for young men is not meant to color him favorably. Meanwhile, Colonel Sun meets with the sole survivor of the fire aboard the cruiser from the night before. He tells of his escape from the hospital and of what he knows about the Altair. Bond, without registering it fully, sees that man scramble down the hillside through binoculars from the boat as he inspects the cliffs. Colonel Sun then visits M in his little room, and readers see that the head of MI6 is doing okay. He's not been denied the courtesies of regular food and toilet, but the view could be better. Bond and Ariadne and Litsas prepare for the next stage by collecting rations and supplies in town, where they identify von Richter in the flesh. He is there, presumably, to act as Colonel Sun's trigger man for whatever weapon will be used against the conference. Motivated by Bond's moral fiber, Yanni is paid at this point and left with the charter back to Piraeus. 007 finally places the earlier scene of the man scrambling down the hill 
with the local descriptions relayed by Litsas of an injured man who left hospital and disappeared down the cliffs. Suspecting he now knows where to start in locating Sun's hideout, Bond prepares to reconnoiter. In the darkness of the early morning, Bond, now 200 feet above the water, waits and watches on the cliff. His patience is soon rewarded when von Richter arrives and moors on a little stone quay below. He unpacks an awkward, heavy bag, which Bond suspects is the weapon that will be used, and he walks to the house where Sun greets him. Bond carefully inspects the outside of the home and manufactures a brief glimpse inside, memorizing the layout as best he can. Back on the cliff, Bond is found by one of the guards, but Litsas, keeping watch from the beach below, fires his rifle and eliminates the threat. Bond returns to Litsas. At this point, Amos introduces an interesting shift in the narrative. An objective third-party perspective enters into the writing, a Mr. George Ioannidis, who becomes temporary captain of the Altair after switching vessels for 36 hours with Litsas in the port. Having been told nothing, George knows he'll be paid 3,000 drachmas for the exchange, and he happily agrees. We learn a little about George's ambitions for a girl named Maria and her parents' lukewarm feelings towards him, and so on and so forth. Things aboard the Altair go well for George, until he's noticed by some strange men ashore. Innocently, he waves at them, and their strange, delayed response leads to a small motorboat arriving and boarding his vessel. The temporary captain is interrogated and then shot dead after telling the Russian-accented man everything he wanted to know about the exchange and offering a full description of his own boat, the Cynthia. Here ends the story of George Ioannidis. The book's final act then really heats up, but Bond's plan for reaching Sun's house is spoiled by the arrival of Arensky's men sent to apprehend Bond following their interrogation of George. Their million-candle spotlight is easily enough dealt with, but Bond's position aboard the Cynthia has now certainly been revealed to Sun's observant watch. Bond reaches the beach only to be knocked unconscious. He wakes up in a comfortable high-backed chair and in the company of Colonel Sun Liang Tan of the Chinese People's Army. Well-mannered and precise, Sun introduces himself with pleasantries and confirms that Ariadne, Litsas, and of course M are all safely secured in his web. Some idealist chat commences, typically one-sided and in line with other Bond villain mania, and Sun confirms for Bond that he and M are going to be used as framed fall men for the terrorist act that will soon occur. The tropey villain spills all card is played here, a mainstay of the Bond adventures. The colonel then brings Bond to sit with M for a few moments before he's led into the small cellar of the house, which has been scrubbed and outfitted for his torture. As Bond's torture begins, Colonel Sun uses skewers to access pressure points in Bond's ear and nasal cavity. Scenes reminiscent of Daniel Craig's Spectre immediately jump to mind here for readers, and the film does credit Amos's work in the closing credits, interestingly enough. Before having his eyes gouged out, or his bones broken one by one, as is the plan, Bond is meant to suffer the torment of sexual desire. Intent on using Luisa, the Italian introduced back in Chapter 5, Colonel Sun forces Luisa to strip and tease Bond, but he hadn't prepared for the girl's own integrity or conviction to be expressed, and as Luisa leans towards Bond to play her sick part in the drama, she stealthily cuts through the toweling which has him tethered to the chair, gives him the knife, and then pretends that he's died. 
Seizing his moment, when a disbelieving son approaches to inspect Bond, 007 drives the knife into the colonel's back and he collapses on the uneven cellar floor. Aided by Louisa and Dr. Lohman, the latter of whom revolted against Sun's torturous ways at just the right time, Bond escapes with enough hypodermic injections to keep himself and his sedated allies going. Ariadne stays with M while Bond and Litsas chase down von Richter and the weapon, now identified as a trench mortar, and subdue Sun's remaining heavies. Successful on both fronts, Bond returns to the house and the cellar where he finds Colonel Sun has escaped. Louisa has been stabbed through the heart, and Dr. Lohman, like Cato, sits in a grisly pool of his own perforated intestines, waiting to die. Thanks to morphine, though, there's not much pain for Dr. Lohman, and he wishes Bond luck before expiring. Following his blood trail, Bond locates Colonel Sun resting against the buttress of a rock. Some paltry final threats emerge while he holds on to a mortar bomb. Bond dives aside, and Sun awkwardly dispenses of the bomb with random abandon in his weakening breaths. Bond seizes the knife and plunges it into Sun's heart, ending him for good. He passes out, aware only that Litsas and Ariadne were nearby. To conclude the adventure, Amos brings us back to the Grand Britannia Hotel in Athens. The banqueting room plays host to a summation shared between Minister Ronald Rideout, M, and Bond. Also present is a man from Moscow, a delegate by the name of Yermolov, who wishes to meet with Bond. Yermolov apologizes to Bond for his country's security errors in this affair and for Orensky's mistakes more generally. Like Litsas, Colonel Sun, and Ariadne before him, Yermolov also cites trouble with bureaucracy as failing real people in real situations. Yermolov then offers Bond the Order of the Red Banner for his services to peace, of course, Bond kindly refuses the honor, as he's not entitled to claim award for his work with MI6. Yermolov accepts this and hints that it's not really worth much in currency anyway, however grand it sounds, but he does offer his sincere thanks and future support should Bond ever again find himself in Russia or working in a Russian-linked adventure. Colonel Sun ends then, with a distinct feeling that the West-Soviet conflict is changing in real terms, finally welcoming a shared horizon of new external threats and perhaps the prospect of collaboration. Amos's take, however, on the Chinese or any other Southeast Asian power is left ambiguous. Bond, Litsas, and Ariadne enjoy a final drink together in Athens. Litsas says his goodbyes warmly and leaves Bond and Ariadne to spend some last hours in Athens together. Neither agent is willing to leave their work or sacrifice their service for the other. Both figures remain willing prisoners to different ideologies, and though they separate, agree to enjoy their captivity while they can. And that's the end of Colonel Sun by Kingsley Amos. summary is for you guys so you can enjoy uh, the atmosphere of the story and what uh, Emma's presented I guess the blow by blow I suppose and <laughs> now we'll, we're going to go into what we thought of Amos's text what we thought of the story what we thought of the characters how he rendered Bond uh, that's what's next up here on um, Bond by Numbers
Yeah, and, and we use the acronym ANGLE here when we review a story. We haven't we done quite acronyms. a long, long time. We sure do love our acronyms. They're just great things to play around with. The A stands for Adversaries and Allies, and we give a mark out of five. The N stands for Narrative and Story, and we give a mark out of five. The G stands for Girls or the Bond Woman in the story. And how that female protagonist is played out. Thank you, yes. Or Antagonist, if indeed the case may be. Um, the L for locations, and the E for equipment, how the gadgetry is, or not necessarily the gadgetry, but how, how the equipment's utilized, what tools are in the story. Yeah, the field work and uh, the resources yeah, exactly. that Bond uses at his disposal. Yeah, so we, we've scrambled up the cliff of the preamble, we've introduced the story, we've given a summary, let's just jump in, buddy, let's talk about Kingsley Amos's Colonel's Son, and talk about the A, the Adversaries and Allies. We got five points up, each of us available for scoring. How did you feel about this side and section? Well, let's look at the adversaries that we have. So we have the prime one, uh, the titular adversary, Colonel Sun Lian Tang. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the of the People's Liberation Army, then we have uh, his assortment of droogs, <laughs> of droogs. Yeah, I guess you could say of henchmen. So we have, for example, De Graaf, the mm-hmm. the cruel mm-hmm. the cruel Dutchman, uh, sexual sadists. Uh, then we have Doctor Lohman, who is like. He's like an interrogation expert, an anesthesiologist type of, of individual. Yeah, that, he's, that, he's uh, just, Colonel Sun he's is just using. a doctor. He's a doctor. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's not a he's not a torture expert. In fact, it's the torture that turns him around. Yes, exactly. And then we have, of course, uh, the I guess the two girls, Louisa the Italian and Donnie the mm-hmm. uh, Albanian. Uh, and then we have, and then of course. You know, why not throw another villain in there that's as clear, you know, that's, you know, Colonel Sun, who is very much, like, we'll get into that about how much he is kind of a trope in himself. We have another yeah. famous trope from Hollywood uh, in particular, and that is, of course, the Nazi. So we have our Ludwig mm. von Richter, formerly of the SS. Of course, and yeah. Got to mm-hmm. have a Nazi in there. And then we have like minor antagonists. We got like kind of bureaucratic. Uh, bureaucratic antagonists or I would say challenges or obstacles uh, just for people that are getting Bond's way a little bit. Uh, even though he's more of an ally, I don't know, I still think Sir Reynolds, uh right out's a bit of a ponce. Um, <laughs> yeah, he and, is. And, and I just... mean ponce like in the, t- in the connotation of just someone being like an idiot or not, you know, not all there, you know. Uh, he, he's, he's kind of an ambitious fool, that particular guy. Or maybe he's not a fool at all. Maybe he's just an ambitious asshole and that's pretty much his character. I think I think that is it. I mean, he's yeah. a, he kind of bookmarks the story, doesn't he? He comes in at the at the beginning and at the end. Um, Bookends, yeah. He's an inter- yeah, he's an interesting guy, but he he does catch himself uh, when he's kind of putting Bond down at the beginning and recognizes. And may, maybe it's just for the sake of him being on stage, you know. But he does recognize, I think, or at least publicly acknowledges that uh, that Bond did do well to escape quarterdeck without, you know, being captured and giving the country a chance to get back its head of intelligence. And then uh, I guess you could say he's a minor antagonist, uh, is uh, Colonel General Igor Arensky. Uh, he is the KGB mm-hmm. head on on the fictional island of Rakonisi. Uh, he's basically in charge of the security of the conference. That's right. Yeah. Well, it is, after all, it's a, it's a Russian 
conference that they've called it, right? Yes. And it's it's his sort of baby to uh, to kind of supervise, and he is kind of understandably so. He's sidelined. No, that's not the right word. He's blinded a bit by what's really going on when um, Ariadne goes to speak to him because the 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 temptation to catch Bond kind of overtakes, doesn't it, his better judgment? It does, yes. Uh, in most cases, you would, of all the information we're fed about uh, Ariansky so far, we assume that he's a typical bureaucrat, Politburo kind of guy, even though it's the Soviet Union, there's also a, a ladder of hierarchy they have to climb. And he mm-hmm. looks like he's on That's the right. way up, up it, you know, that's what he's interested in is uh, getting it probably his little dacha somewhere outside of Moscow in the end, or a nice place on the Black Sea, you know, some somewhere. Uh, it seems like that might be, you know, his end goal, you know, power how in did, his own way. How did, how did you feel, Josh, about, um, about Amos making him... Uh, homosexual, or at least leaning that way. Was that a demonization Not, of uh, of think the lifestyle? It, in most cases, it wouldn't be. I found that kind of surprising for a Russian, to be honest, because you, because if you think about Russia and its very anti- stance, it's, it's a cultural and uh, political stance against homosexuality, even today. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not something that you hear too much about. And so to see that written in, in, in a novel, I found that quite interesting. But then, of course, we remember, you know, how young Yanni is in, in the story. And then we realize, okay, yeah, yeah. so not only are they, so is he demonizing homosexuality or is he, simp- but not only that, you know, he's also kind of insisting that, that uh, not only he's, 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 he's not a bad guy because he's homosexual, maybe he's a bad guy because, well, it seems also he's like a pedophile as well, so... Mm. Yeah, okay, the way he the way he sort of uh yeah, you're absolutely right. The way he sneers towards and kind of gropes around Yanni. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that because yeah. my mind initially went to the young boy that he was or the young guy that he was in the harbor with or that he met from the harbor or whatever, yeah. you know. When I was reading about the way that he described him, uh Amos described him, it reminded me a lot of uh in Frank Herbert's Dune how he described the Baron Harkonnen of Vladimir, mm-hmm. who also has a Russian name, and how because because the Baron was also is it's a low key a pedophile as well, and mm-hmm. this just kind of reminded me of that description of that character. Um, so it just That's brought interesting. I, I guess it triggered that in my mind. Remember, it made, made me remember that sto- that um, book, and then this connected to me. And like so again, is Amos demonizing homosexuality, or is he just mm-hmm. trying to make it normal here? But then, of course, you have this this problematic thing here with Yanni. Like, we know Yanni's, like, in his late teens, I'm assuming. No, he's 16. I, I, 16. Oh, he's 16. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't know what the the age consent is in Greece and whatnot, so I really can't say, you know, if that's... The world but changes Yanni, in that respect. Even if, even if 16 is the age of consent back then in Greece, he he thinks that... I mean, he, he, he shrugs away from him. You know, he, he thinks he's disgusting, Narensky. He, he's got no interest in him at all. Yeah, and it's, I it's think true. That's so maybe he has a, communicate. a vibe. Yeah. Not just mention that's too, a vibe, is, and is that Yanni has an innocent quality to him as well, because when he kills that person on the on the boat, you could tell that he was, he was like, uh, he seemed like it wasn't bothered by it, right? Whereas, like, Bond was really... I think mm-hmm. struck on how you know terrible it was that this boy lost his innocence when he killed that man. So That's right. yeah. there is a hint of, I guess, of the author describing Yanni as an as a corrupted innocent as well. So that would mm-hmm. fit into you know the portrayal of Arensky. Arensky's an interesting character mm-hmm. though because you expect him to become a real foil for Bond in the next couple of chapters, 
But in fact, and I really like the subversion that Amos did here, is that you think that uh, Ariadne is going to play the game that Ariensky wants, but she doesn't. Mm-hmm. She basically goes back to Bond and says, yeah, that guy is a fool, complete fool. Don't. Yeah, so he, yeah. he automatically is discounted from the narrative, you know what I mean, as soon as that happens, which, That's was, really, right. which was really mm-hmm. interesting because they set she, him up. She's not interested in she's not interested in his leadership or his autonomy or his his authority over her um, because she is one of these other communists. Well, and that KGB. story makes that very clear. Yeah, he's KGB political careerist, whereas she is GRU. Mm-hmm. They're sort of like the... Grassroots. Freedom fighters, if you can, the, if you the call freedom it that. fighters, yeah. the freedom fighters, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the grassroots, the liberator type, you know, like they're more about the ideology of communism more so than about you know it, the trappings mm-hmm. of power that it offers to some people. So. Exactly, and the story has that theme going throughout it. I mean, even Colonel Sun, Ariadne, Bond, Litzas, they all speak about and against bureaucracy in different ways in this story. And it, it's really interesting that that's one of the things that both the antagonist and the and the protagonist have in common, which is their sort of dislike of bureaucratic channels and figures like Arensky. And it, isn't it funny, Josh, that we've been talking about the adversaries and allies for a couple of minutes now, and we haven't even mentioned the key uh, antagonist, who is Colonel Sun. We're, we're going in other directions. I don't know uh, what that says, well, or if we're it's just, just our poor planning. No, I don't think it's poor planning. We just yeah. went through all the adversaries. <laughs> because I'm leading up now uh, with the sidetrack with Ariansky. I'm leading up now, of course, mm-hmm. to Colonel Sun. So okay. there was parts of his character, the way that he talked, the way that he spoke, that was well written. Um it's, it definitely seems like there was uh, a, a depth to his character that whether or not those depths were mined well enough to make him stand mm-hmm. out is another story. Yeah. But I found that there yeah. was something there that Amos was playing with. And I think he wanted to show a different mm-hmm. type of villain. But at the same time, it had the trappings of a traditional Bond villain in his own way. Something like Le Chiffre, something like Blofeld, something like Goldfinger. There was a similarity to villains like that. But on top of that, you also have this unfortunate kind of Fu Manchu villain recast as a late 60s Chinese, red Chinese cultural revolution uh, type, you know, figure. You know what I mean? Okay, so... Very Maoist, as opposed to like the traditional Fu Manchu Asian demonization Mm -hmm. you would see like years and years before. Like Dr. No, for example. Yeah, like Dr. No. Let let me speak to the first part of your question, which was about the depth of Colonel Sun. Because I find that there is depth to him, but he is he's an ex he's an exposition character. So much of what we learn about him is is through what we're told and simple actions he has, his kindness, his politeness, his courtesy, have a drink. Yes, of course, here take rest, blah blah blah. Like you get little things. But they're really, it's, it's like the whole story just leads up to his one incident of torture. And yes. if you think about Thunderball, Blofeld was introduced through exposition, like an incredible amount of exposition. And yet he was, he was a more dynamic figure. Yeah, um, you had that whole instance about power, how but he punished, you had that whole instance where he punished that one guy for messing with the girl, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kidnap victim. Yeah, the kidnap that's exactly victim, right. The, right, and uh-huh. uh, they raped her, and so he had those persons killed immediately afterwards because that wasn't how he did business. So automatically, that's you knew right. that there was yeah. some kind of skewed moral ambiguity to Blofeld, uh, despite you know his own megalomania uh, that kind mm-hmm. of made him more interesting. And yes, basically they build up Sun to become this essential, just like this typical sadistic 
torturer uh, type character. Yes, I think that's I think that's correct. I don't yeah. think that there's a great dimension to him here. We do learn, but Josh, the way I wrote it down as I was reading it is that it's, it's almost like an encyclopedia entry. The information we learn about him, it's not done through his relationships, his conversations. No. It's like, I've been, I've, okay, here I am. I have to sit back and listen to what I'm going to tell you about Colonel Sun. Got it? Okay, good. Now use that to judge what happens next. It's not like... I can judge the character. You know, it's, it's, it's the characterization technique. You know, you've got dramatic characterization and you've got expository characterization. You've got the sort of dialogue and action lets the character be seen by the reader or, or you're told everything you need to know about the character. I feel like here Amos is telling us more than he is dramatizing it for us. And yeah, that's a little disappointing for me. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't seem quite secure about how to portray this character because... Hmm. Maybe he's aware that, and I think he's very sensitive to a lot of social issues going on at the time as well in this story. Uh-huh, you can, uh-huh. There's a political feel to a lot of the elements in this story, there a lot is. of the different yes, plot threads that you see. So you can see that Amos is definitely aware of that political, social um, dynamic. So I think maybe he was a bit hesitant on how to portray Colonel Sun. Like, I think you're right. Is he yeah. trying to avoid the typical stereotypes of like the Fu Manchu or Doctor No, even? Yeah. Or good point. And, and but then at the same time, you also had to have a, a a villain that stood out, you know. And to me, it's really interesting in this story. I found a much more intriguing villain, and even though it's the most typical cookie cutter villain you can get, and that's a Nazi. I found von Richter a really interesting dynamic. Like you have like this mm. red Chinese. Mm. Uh, agent working with this former Nazi, a fascist, mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. working together. And the portrayal of uh, what I've read about, you know, uh, the Nazi regime and about the mindset of those people, von Richter was very well portrayed. And Amos, you could tell Amos was probably in the war. I'm not sure if he was or not, but he would have known people who were, and he would probably have been very well sure. aware of, of the mindset of, yeah. uh, of, of uh, you know, of the brainwashed uh, German people. Uh, who fell under under the Nazi spell, and von Richter is one of them, because I really found that whole exchange uh, that Bond has with Litsass later on really interesting, because mm-hmm. when Litsass kills Richter, or before he kills von Richter, von Richter is kind of confused as to what he did wrong. That's ex- Yeah, and, that's right. And it's yeah. the logic of, like, the brainwashing saying, you know, like, I don't understand what I did wrong. I was following orders, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, the children. Mm-hmm. Well, that's unfortunate. But, you know, he has this very logical thing. And even when he was talking, when, when he was watching the torture, he's observing it scientifically almost. Mm-hmm. And, and and then he goes and leaves because he's more interested in, you know, explaining about the weaponry and the mortars and how the operation is yeah. going to be done. Yeah. So there was a very interesting, I don't know, I just found like this, even though he, you get him in snippets, they built Von Richter up very well throughout the story. And to me, he came out as more of like the main antagonist than Colonel Sun. But even though they were mm-hmm. kind of working together, it, I, I just found it kind of interesting how I was more into Von Richter as a villain than I was Colonel Sun. Mm. I also That's find, interesting, yeah. I also find, and I don't know if you agree with me on this, but up to the point where Bond is captured and then they begin the torturing of mm-hmm. of him down and below in the cellar, I feel that Colonel Sun is a totally different character between those two moments. 
I feel like you mean in the lead up and then in the, in the, the lead up. Yeah, to me, it seems like that would be distasteful to him based on what I'm reading about his character. You know, like <laughs> yep. to me, yep. as a typical yep. kind of Red Army kind of mentality, where like shoot him painlessly in the back of the head and that's it, move along. Yeah, that's that to mm-hmm. me seems like what this guy would do. The torture thing, mm-hmm. it just didn't make any sense to me. And then of course, then because it's almost like he uh, Amos changed gears and go. Well, how am I going to justify this? And how am I going to make this guy become a torturer? I know. I'll just say he's a fan of the Marquis de Sade. And, you know, that Mm -hmm, will justify mm -hmm. this change in the character. So, again, I feel that Amos was a bit insecure in this character and how when he was writing him. I think that's a really astute reading. And I would agree with you. There is that contradiction in the character as we read him in terms of the dramatic characterization. And the expository characterization just gives us a note at the beginning about how he was an interrogator during the Korean War for the North Koreans. And that's what we have to go on. We don't get to see his menace. We don't get to see any sort of foreshadowing of that characterization until he's in the cellar. Yeah. And then you're like, wait a minute, what? Oh, yeah, uh, Marquis de Sade. Marquis de Sade. Yeah, sorry, okay. North Korea. Uh, I mean, kept saying Red China. Yeah. I'm sorry, North Korea. Sorry about that. I've been saying that earlier on. yeah. I agree with you. I, I see that, and it is a problem. It it does... I mean, Colonel Sun is not one of the great Bond villains. He, he just simply isn't. He's interesting in this story, but uh, it it isn't... He's not superior. Like, he's not great. I, I don't find overall. Um, let, let's talk about Litsas. Uh, I, I thought I thought Litsas was really good. He was a believable character. He did have vibes of Karen Bay for me, um, but Columbo. when you get an older... In and Colombo, yeah, in the film. Like yeah, well, resistance also, background. Yeah, yeah. So there was definitely Colombo in here, definitely Karen Bay for me at least. But I found him his own character too. And I credit I credit Markham or Amos for that because I think Litsas does exist outside of those shells. He yes. is an interesting dude. Uh, it was fun to see his resourcefulness with the weaponry and talking in the harbor and, and stuff. He's definitely got cur- courage. He's got uh, cojones, as Colombo would say. Trussos. <laughs> um, Guts. Trussos. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, 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 I did really that whole, like, I thought he was funny. Chest beating thing that, that um, uh, Topol did in uh, Free Rides Only. That's what Scott was laughing at, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You know, he was, he was fun. I enjoy. I, I, yeah. What did you think of? I guess I, I mentioned it when we were talking about von Richter. I really also liked how he was a very three dimensional figure because all through the story mm-hmm. he wants revenge on von Richter for what he did to his That's people right, in, yeah. in Capazadusa, Capazadona. Sorry, and the very fact that you know when he when he be, before he kills him, like he was just so morally torn by it that he just realized I just wanted I was just anger. I, you know what I mean? It, it wasn't justice uh, yeah. for him. It was like anger and, and vengeance. And I really liked how they presented Litsas as like this very three-dimensional character who just like, I just picture him like he got his revenge. He has his Nazi in front of him, but the guy is giving him nothing, you know, like he's just giving yeah. him nothing at all because there's nothing there. We- there's no, there's no emotional connection. Like there's mm-hmm. no reason Von Richter did that to him specifically. He was just following mm-hmm. orders. There's no emotion on Von Richter's end. There's no portray- per- betrayal that he personally did or guilt to feel that he did mm-hmm. to Litsas. And so Litsas has nothing in the end, even when he just, you know, that's right. Him. Yeah. So, yeah. Because if, if Von Richter had responded and said to, said to Litsas, ah, you Greek scum, you blah, 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 you and your Western philosophies kill you all, blah, you know, the, yeah. that, that type of chat would have validated what Litsas was doing and it would have made him 
uh, feel righteous in, in the kill. But no, you're yeah. absolutely right. And so I extend then out to you, Josh, this question. What do you think Amos might be saying as a political writer, as, as, a, as a social writer? What might he be saying about conflict at this time, this idea of retribution for past past yes. uh, injustice? What What's he saying here? The fact that the Nazi doesn't think that he is an evil character and the fact that Litsas can no longer feel satisfied in the kill because the guy doesn't understand. He's got this lack of uh, empathy. Like, what, what do you think about But is the lack of empathy, said is that brainwashed out of him? Like, could Von Richter mm. go home to his family Perhaps, and stuff yeah. and, and, you know, treat his son with love or something if he had any? Um, mm. I think they also, they also, though, unfortunately... There's some hint that also too that von Richter is a homosexual. Mm, that's true. Well, he's which just big, a young which guy. Which makes him that a hypocrite using... Nazi, I guess. But anyway. Yeah. Well, there's a few of those. I'm guessing. So, how do we feel then, Josh? Overall, about the adversaries and the allies, we've also got Gordienko, who Gordienko. was Ariadne's sort of chief uh, channel chief. Yeah. This is what I, I like felt him. overall about the. Uh, yeah, Gordienko was good. Um, I liked also. Uh, Yanni was a good character in his own way. He worked for the story. Uh, then we have poor George Ionides. Uh, he was a bit uh, of a tragic figure. I like figure. that bit. I did like yeah. that. I like that story shift in perspective. It was interesting. <laughs> I like how Amos is poor using George. these characters to kind of show different facets of, of what's going on. He's not just, even though the story is very meat and potatoes about, you know, Bond goes on a rescue operation, he infiltrates the enemy mm-hmm. base, he gets tortured, he escapes. And, you know, this it has that standard thread. But at the same time, yeah. he's showing the all the different factions involved and he's showing how each of them would act or react he's also showing the cost of these reactions on how it, on how it affects regular day people like he's showing all the strings are all connected you know and i really like that about the story yeah. uh and mm-hmm. it's something that fl- and i think that's really showing a political landscape that emmis is well known for yeah. and this to me is something uh-huh. that i think fleming avoided in his stories and this is why it feels he a did. little bit absolutely right. yeah to, to me in yeah. that res- in that respect yeah um yeah, so the, and then of course uh, we got you know Bill Tanner shows up in there, so that's cool. Yeah, Tanner. Uh, yeah, Tanner's here. We we got Crawford, the detective. Although they seem to build him up a little bit that he might reappear again, but he might become he just, important. Just, but yeah, he, he just, just disappears after the con after the conference with Rideout, right after this yeah, the hearing. Particularly when Amos says that you know Bond liked him instantly. You know, whenever you get that sort of a line, you're expecting there to it to go somewhere. But yeah. no, it just it doesn't really. He just functions in, like like Amos uses his characters to function within the narrative. Uh, mm-hmm. What I put in terms of both the allies and the adversaries of this story, um, what I simply said that you know beyond M being a, a MacGuffin uh, in his own way, yeah, he was M yeah. is for MacGuffin. Uh, yeah, they, they were just used to push the story along, but they did it in a good way. Um, and I, I, yeah, they were efficiently used. Some of them were archetypes, but some were more fleshed out than usual. And I think Emerson made an effort on that, and I appreciate that about it. And this was probably one of the one of the stronger scores that I definitely had for this book was uh, the allies and adversaries. I think he populated the world of this story in a way that all the characters took part in a meaningful way. I don't think there was any excess. You know, there wasn't any real. Uh, I felt there was a point to every character, and I felt every one of them had their own agency in what was going on, including, uh, surprisingly, uh, uh, adversaries turned allies when you have, like, Louisa, for example. Yeah. So what was your score, buddy? 
overall, I veered between a three and a half and a four. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I found there were some characters that weren't fleshed out enough. The Colonel's son was a bit of a disappointing villain for me, particularly because he was the title villain. Uh, mm-hmm. The other the other villains were henchmen as well, uh, but they were also given little traits to it. The allies I found really interesting. I think they were the best part mm-hmm. of the book for me was the allies, both the the ambiguous ones and the clear allies. So that was a strong mark, but not enough for me, I think, to give it a, a four. So I'm going to go with three mm-hmm. and a half overall for allies and adversaries. I want to add, though, that if I were to evaluate the allies separately from the adversaries, I would give the allies a much higher mark, though. I would possibly even like yeah, a, yeah. a half a point away from a five. Yeah, well, well, I also gave it a three and a half. And for similar reasons, I felt there was an imbalance between um, the, the titular character and what I got. Like, you know, you expect you expect that title character to be to be an imposing force in the story. And he, he really wasn't. Uh, you know, even his death was a bit blasé. Like, Bond jumped behind a rock and he blew himself up. Like, meh. Okay, like... Or he was going like, to blow why, himself why, up. Well, he was going to, yes, sorry. But why bring him back to life from that incredible, you know, be being stabbed in the back? Like, why yeah. bring him back from that if you're just going to let him I was fizzle on the that. rocks? Like, it seemed a bit weird to me. Yeah, they want to have like yeah. one more standoff that was necessary. I guess, I guess, but it was uh, underwhelming. Amos, it was. I, I think Amos maybe wanted to show some moral consequence to uh, the situation. Like, for example, mm-hmm. it's Don, it's uh, it's Louisa that frees Bond when she cuts him. So she, That's so right, yes. son obviously underestimated her. He just he dismissed her earlier on as a whore. You know what I mean? So uh, That's right. yeah, so it, so, it worked. You know, yeah. It worked. It worked in that regard. Whether that was her, built up yeah. or not, uh, that's an argument to be said. But well, we're seeing, I feel that we're, like, we're seeing it, it eye to eye. Yeah, to me, it, it could have been very simple, like maybe like how Le Chief dies in Casino Royale, like dispatched right then and there in the interrogation room, and then that's it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, but they brought him back again for one more wahaha. Uh, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and they also had a show too. I think that maybe Amos felt like there was something missing from. The, the change of character that we get from the exposition point to the point where he's torturing Bond, where he becomes like this incredibly evil, sadistic figure, and then it le- and then and then I guess maybe Amos felt he wanted to do one more thing with Sun. There was still something more to do with them, and he has that yes. thing like yeah. "Damn you, Bond!" or something like yeah. that. Was like <laughs> it, it goes back to something that would be more believable in the character that we knew about prior to the interrogation, and that would be someone who would want to, who was a spy master, an interrogator, who wanted to beat Bond. And maybe if they had focused on that, it may have made it, it, it carried that through, it would have been maybe made his character a little bit better. And maybe Amos wanted to return to that. And so he has this one more, show, this final showdown, I guess you could say, post-resurrection uh, mm-hmm. to finish him off. And maybe he felt that was, yeah. he wasn't comfortable with how he left the character in the in the cellar. I don't know. He he was an odd. I mean, I think the blueprint is there for the character, but I don't think we've got enough pages in here to do what Amos was perhaps capable of doing. You know, his plan politically is great, but you don't need to torture Bond and M to get that plan to happen. Just get, capture them, shoot them, and then use their corpses the any way you want to, right? Like, yeah. in, in, as 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 fall guys for the the conference being terrorized, you don't you don't have to do any of the torture stuff. But that just prolongs the story, and it makes it it makes his plan seem a little bit kind of trite. But anyway, um, we we see eye to eye on that. Um, there is a good 
range of characters in this story very entertaining at least and um even though the, uh, the the chief villain if we can call him that is a little bit underwhelming and perhaps underwritten he's not um he's not going to drag the whole mark down three and a half is still a, a strong passing mark in terms of narrative josh i'll go really quickly through this pal um i was also a three and a half for this you know i i do not mind did not mind the writing of this story whatsoever. I think that Amos has a really good academic knowledge of the Bond character from the Fleming books, and obviously his writing of the James Bond dossier helps to justify more than justify his respect for the original, uh, the original character. But this adventure was interesting, and I like the writing. I, I mean, I, it, it felt right to me. It felt accustomed, and I did also feel like the travelogue bits were quite nice. But yeah, they were good. The reason, the reason I bring it down a bit is because I found Bond to be a little bit humorless here as a character. And I think that that's a feature that Fleming's Bond had managed to avoid throughout most of his adventures. He did give Bond a bit of personality. Like, it's noticeable, to me at least, just how stiff Bond is in this in this book. And I don't know if that is a... <laughs> it's not a bad analogy. I don't know if that's because... Uh, as you intimated earlier, Amos is maybe just a little reticent about how to bring Bond back without Fleming. Uh, if he's a bit kind of puppeting him in a strange, distant way here, but it's it's in the reactionary character writing, and it's in the choice of Bond's direct action. Like there, there isn't a lot of there's not a lot of reflection, a lot of humor for Bond. There's there's a lot of exposition in this story. There's not a lot of subtlety to Bond here in the writing. We do get flashes of doubt, um, and we do get flashes of emotion. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I just found that this was a weakness in the story for me. Like, it, But then again, maybe as new territory, we should also consider what Bond has been through chronologically in the last few adventures. You know, he's been shot, he's been brainwashed, he's uh, drowned almost, been dropped off a balloon into the ocean. You know, he's... Lost his wife. There's lots of... Exactly. There's lots of stuff that's happened in the last little while. So maybe his character arc is believable that he'd be stiff here. I don't know. Maybe Amos deserves more credit than I'm op than I'm offering him for operating on the same character points of that Bond was kind of traveling through. I, I don't. I don't really know. But... It did. It did kind of bother me a bit that I felt like I was reading an Arnold Schwarzenegger adventure at points instead of a James Bond novel. Like he didn't seem to take much pleasure in the food. There was pleasure in the sex, but there wasn't much pleasure in the the camaraderie. I didn't get that. You know, it was forced. It was I liked him or Bond liked him immediately, or he knew Litzus was a good man. You know, there there wasn't a lot of sort of sit down conversation, really get to know each other, like. I just yeah, think this another like fifty he, pages would have would have worked. I think almost in a way, Bond himself is sort of feels forced in this story. Like mm. he's like the cipher for everything that's going on around him. Yeah, you know, he's like the lightning rod of everything that's going on. He's it's like Bond on autopilot in in a way. Like if you think about it, he's playing golf and then he goes to M's and then of course M is being kidnapped. And then it just goes from there, and he has his trajectory mm. all the way through. Now, knowing Fleming yeah. novels as he does, uh, knowing Fleming's style, Amos decides to, as best he can, to provide us what he would portray as what Fleming would write his mindset as. And and we're told this, like, he is a good man, he is a good man. But we don't really get any real, like, ruminations from this Bond at all. Like, he's very reactive, 
in the, I, I find in this story. He yes, reacts he to everything perfectly. Very, very much. You don't get any yeah. real, you don't get a lot of self-reflection except for a few moments. So I mm-hmm. think that Amos may have struggled with, you know, first of all, he wanted to get a story right and he wanted to make, he wanted to tell a believable Bond story more like a Fleming, um, of, 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 I guess, more of a non-gadget-centered Fleming story like from Russia with Love or mm-hmm. Honor Magic Secret Service something along those lines that he wanted to tell with this story. He wanted to be nitty gritty. He wanted to show, have some verisimilitude in the political, political landscape and uh, with the character. And maybe he was just hesitant, you know, on how to portray Bond. And maybe that was something that he had issues with. And maybe that's why all the allies all stand out because they react well around Bond. Yeah. They fill him up. They build him up a wee bit. They, they they build him up and he, and he used that maybe as a bit of a crutch. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. It kind of reminds me. That's a good observation. It kind of reminds me of like uh, the Nolan Batman trilogy, where you have like Bond played by a really good actor, Christian Bale. But to me, what I love about those movies is the vast cast of characters that Nolan bounces back and forth between that are, that are around Batman. Like you have like Alfred, you have Alfred played by Michael Caine, or you have like Harvey Dent, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. you have like all the other. Commissioner Gordon, played by Gary Oldman, all those characters are more dynamic and more interesting than Batman is in all three of those films, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I like Christian Bale mm-hmm. a lot, but I will say that that was not one of my favorite performances that he did. He was very much like a lightning rod around which all the characters worked. And to me, this is what this feels like. This is jumping mm-hmm. around, you know, from uh, from from the each Greek island, seeing the perspective of like of a Russian intelligence officer, a KGB intelligence officer, seeing the perspective of a young uh, GRU agent in Athens, a woman, seeing the perspective yeah. of someone like George, jumping back to the yeah. villain's plan George, as well. Yeah. Like it almost had like a bit of a of a Christopher Nolan quality to it when it did that mm. that big expanding um, narrative. Whereas the main character though is a cipher that doesn't really do much he just does what he needs he's just a utilitarian factor mm-hmm. going for the mcguffin which is m yeah and, and it is, I, I, th- I think you're you're yeah. you know you mentioned lazenby and i think that while it was kind of an off-the-cuff comment i think you're onto something because as we said in our film reviews and uh, throughout our tenure in bond by numbers with the, with lazenby you know his sample size is short amos never wrote another bond so is it fair for us to say that this is amos's bond well it kind of is the only bond he gave us but at the same time had he written more novels would he have done more with the character would he have fleshed him out you know would he have given him that sort of that humanity that depth of of um you know, maybe a bit more humor, a bit more charm, you know, for the reader, at least. Yeah. Uh, who knows, right? You make a good point. Um, but, and I did like what you said there about the structure of the story, kind of giving us these different perspectives, because that did freshen it up. I thought that was good. I enjoyed that. And I mean, I went 3.5 for the narrative. It is a straight ahead story. I appreciated that. I wasn't getting confused. I, I was able to just run with the mission. And that was great. And I think for a, a new writer to do that, you got to keep the narrative straight. And, you know, Amos did that. So three and a half is, is again, it's a strong mark. What did you go for? So regarding the narrative, I found that um, it was very different from most Fleming stories because usually you have mm-hmm. a whole bunch of world building and sinking into that world in the first mm-hmm. couple chapters of an Ian Fleming novel before That's you get right, to the yeah. story proper. A lot of travelogue feels, a lot of meals being eaten, a lot of thoughts being done, a lot of rem- rem- a lot of ruminations by Bond about the current situation he's in or about you know yeah. past injuries or past uh, uh, demons or you know demons and whatnot. And I found this story just jumps. 
Yeah, a lot of scaffolding, exactly. Whereas this story yeah. just jumps right into the action immediately. Like, Bond is playing golf for, like, a couple of paragraphs, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's back to M's place. And within the first couple of chapters, we're already on our way to Athens. And that's that, true. to me, yeah. was yeah. a very clear-cut narrative, you know, where jump from end to end. Mm-hmm. from be- So that all part leading up into Athens, uh, how he interacted with the characters like Ariadne and, and Gorienko and all that, and, and how he got the boat from Litsis. Uh so you have a really strong first act. I find it it built things up really well. A little different from a Fleming novel, but it did it in a way that to me, you know, felt genuine and I and impelled the story. I found the middle act it did lag a little bit in terms because basically we have a situation where the main characters are on a boat for the second act of the story and they're going from one destination mm-hmm. to another. So then you so in that sense then you you're going to get automatic lag no matter what because of that. But that's fine. Because then you can then have all these perspectives with George and with uh, Arensky and yeah, totally. or yep. perspectives from Colonel Sun and 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 whatnot. And you can kind of and then you also have little encounters like the, how he dips them in, like the whole taking the boat and stuff, commando style. Uh, you know, you have you, you have those elements. But again, the, it did lag a little bit. Then we get the third act where things heat up again, and even though it was very sort of uh, what's the word formulaic, the the third act. Mm. I mean, Bond gets tortured. Uh, we get that nice twist where, with with uh, Lu- Louisa, I was wondering what was the one thing that would get Colonel Sun, you know, to fail his operation, to fail torturing Bond, and how is Bond mm-hmm. going to get out of this situation? Yeah, and yeah. then we get this, we get this Deus Ex Machina from uh, Louisa, and then from Loman as well. And was that telegraphed enough? I'm not quite sure about that. It, it, it came well, out of the it, blue I, for me a little bit, but I figured you know, realistically. It might. It could have happened. I mean, how else? I think Emma's yeah. is sitting there, and I was kind of in his mindset. I empathize with him. How are you going to get Bond out of this situation that doesn't just mm. do, do something like he would do in a Bond movie? Like, I don't know. Like, it's just to me. Like, how are you going to get Bond out of this situation realistically? And I, I well, think Emma's did the best, telegraphed. That, the, the best that he could. And it is telegraphed. It is, it yeah. is a little bit with Luis's character, but. I thought, you, you know, at the beginning with the two girls, when de Graaf is there and he, he picks Luisa and Luisa and Donnie have that quiet discussion and she says, no, I'll go with her as well. Now, you can read that one of two ways, you, or perhaps equally both ways. You can read it as Donnie is being the stronger, I'm going to support my friend and we're, whatever happens to her will happen to me. I'll go with this sexual pig and we'll do our things together as a threesome. Or you could read it as Louisa showcasing that sort of intolerance towards or that disgust for being abused early on, right? And either yes. way... I mean, I thought it would kind of be Donnie would be the one who helped Bond yeah. out because she's the one who stood up for her friend. But equally, Luis is the one who objected to what was going on, which might be the clearer telegraph. Yeah, so it was telegraphed. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But again, yeah. Uh, so it was a believable way how we got Bond out of that scenario. And mm-hmm. yeah. then, of course, we have the... Uh, to me, I read the pages back just to get an idea of it. The plan that Sun concocted with Von Richter to shoot the mortars... I just felt, yeah, and the whole yeah. idea about using their bodies, they're using M and Bond's body just to hide that. Yeah, to me, that just felt a little too convoluted, a little too confusing. So, overall, like, with the narrative, I think the writing nearly captures Fleming's style and flow. It's maybe, you know, less wordier and maybe less self-indulgent in the travelogue aspect. But, uh, you know, Amos creates profound moral arguments, portrays the political situation well enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of the characters, they're thinly stretched. 
I find, and the villain's plan, as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, is just uh, both dramatically simplistic and logically confusing, in my opinion. So I... overall, I, I really liked the narrative of the story. I really did. I found it was very refreshing compared to other Bond stories. And I think Amos's um, ambition for realism is shown here. But at the same time, does that make a great story as a whole? And I asked myself, not exactly. So I'm, mm. I agree with you. I'm at three and a half points. Okay. Well, in this story, Josh, we've only got really one Bond girl, Ariadne Alexandru, who is the Greek communist who is set out to, uh, to kind of lure Bond in, unbeknownst to her and her, her party, or her cell. It kind of feels like cell is the right thing to, to mm. say. But cell is a good way to describe Mm. Um, Bond is actually being lured for a bigger trap. And she's an interesting character. I mean, she she doesn't waste much time in expressing her affections towards Bond. And I don't mean that in a sexual way, but she does sort of do the, the doe-eyed silliness. There is a little bit of but that. But she's aware she's doing that. It's not she an is, example yeah. of her being naive or being silly, which people say she is. Litsass thinks that she is, uh, that she's naive. Bond might even think, at first, thinks that she's naive. Someone who's just, you know, eating, is drinking the communist Kool-Aid, right? So, but <laughs> she has a mind for herself, and Amos is very clear about that in the narrative. Now, there are moments mm-hmm. where I think that uh, many times he gives her some very good agency compared to previous Bond women. Uh, but there's also times, too, I think, when he fails Ariadne. Uh, not, maybe not in, intentionally, but... It just kind of, maybe that just just comes out as in terms of the mindset of a forty year old man, I guess English man at the time with the political ideologies that he inhibited, exhibited. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps she does have agency though. Like the way she turns on Arensky, I really liked that, and I, I like that. I also like that um, Amos went there with her. Like he didn't return Ariadne to Litsis and Bond and and say something stupid like oh Bond could tell that she was uh, she was upset or she was crying she, her 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 principles were torn you know her morality or her decisions or her yeah her principles were divided no and all of a sudden nothing like that she knew no this guy's a fucking joke and, and he she says it out loud pretty much und- to that like she's almost glib about she it. does yeah mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that she had her convictions and she was written to stick to them. And I really did, did like that. And that at the end of the story, both characters know that while if while one of them um, could change the other, the wait a minute, let me try that again. Both characters know that if situation was different and they were closer together, they would probably stick together a bit more, but neither one of them is going to is going to upset their principles. Neither one of them is going to stop doing what they want to do for the sake of the other one, you know. And I and I and I like that. Like I did, yeah. I did think that was cool. I like the subversion of those of the typical Bond girl tropes that was given to her, like. At the beginning, in a way, like Bond is is assessing her when he meets her. He, he's like, "Yeah, she's definitely, you know, uh, he, des- he desires her a hundred percent, you know." And be- and and she's described in that sense too. Uh, but even though, like, in the des- we get some vivid descriptions of her, especially her body and whatnot, by Emmis, you can tell though at the same time that he respects the character 
And I think that was a difference between mm-hmm. sometimes with Fleming is that there was women where Bond, where Fleming clearly didn't respect as women, and they were just tools for Bond to use. There were some women that that actually Fleming portrayed quite uh, uh, imp- imp- uh, that showed quite empathy for in his writing. Uh, sorry, that, that Fleming showed a lot of empathy for in his writing. Where it opposed to with, with this character, though, I found that Emmis was uh, he knew exactly what he wanted to do with her character. He gives her sexual agency as well. Bond wants to go with her just as much as she wants to, you know, bang him. And on yeah, top of that, that's they're, yep, yep. they're kind of amicable uh, breakup at the end of uh, the story mm-hmm. is, is also showing some agency towards her as a sexually liberated woman and whatnot and, and can function without Bond. And like she said, like Aransky is expected to be the character that would trick her and manipulate her into a typical patriarchal narrative. But instead... You know, she automatically sees through his bullshit right away. And mm-hmm. so, you know, so there was a lot of subversion of tropes in this Bond story, but also some re- but also some clinging to the old tropes as well. And Ariadne is proof of that. Yeah, I mean, Donnie and Luisa as, you know, features within the Bond woman or the Bond girl scoring category, um, they did have important roles to play. One of them was sort of the red herring and the other one turned out to be the you know the savior if if that's yes. indeed an appropriate term which which is cool for two for two small characters you know to play their part like donnie madden had that sort of um had that sort of uh Maud adams thing going for her in the man with the golden gun you know where she was just uh kind of hanging out with the bad guy uh even though she was hired on or as escorted on or whatever um and uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a straight ahead Bond adventure from the lady's point of view. You know, there were no foils. There were no alternative trysts. Bond's not sleeping around. It was just pretty straightforward. Ariadne was resourceful. She was cool, tough and determined. She was sexually independent, as you said, you know, um, but the, 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 she didn't have the depth of a Vesper or the backstory of a Melina Havelock or anything yeah. that would really that would really let you sink your teeth into she was she was a surface character with conviction, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not no. going to get you a four. It's not going to get you a four in my book. It's going to get you a three, no. and that's what I gave. Yeah, you. yeah, I'm a hundred percent there with you. Um, I gave her three and a half a point, uh, just just because I found her just okay. I guess so yep. refreshing sure. compared to other Bond women that I, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I gave her a three and a half. I liked her character all the way through. I was going to actually give her higher than that. But I really didn't like how she ends up being like a. Despite I liked how her and despite how I appreciated how Amis have her and her her and Bond depart amicably, I really didn't like how she is basically raped in a orgy or sorry in a, in a threesome with uh, Van Graaff, and mm-hmm. and of course we know that uh, Donnie ends up like or uh, Donnie ends up you know, taking on Van der Graaff afterwards, but we do know that yeah. something did initially uh-huh. happen. And I just don't think that necessarily had to happen in the story. And if it did happen to happen in the story, there was no, like, reference to it. It's almost like it's, it's a throwaway mm-hmm. line that that that's in the novel, and then that's it. It's not referenced anymore. There's no triggers, or there's no trauma left for, for Ariadne to feel. Or Ariadne, or, or, right. or, or, or Donnie to feel at the end mm-hmm. of everything, right? Uh, Ariadne just dismisses it as, you know, that's part of the job, and maybe that's what Amos wanted to show, that she was a strong woman mm-hmm. in that fashion. But many could argue, yeah. too, that, you know, in this modern perspective, you know, does a character need to do that in order to be a strong female character? And so that's, yeah. you know, that's a yeah. debate in itself. 
So, it's interesting to me. It's how she how she gagged up Donnie, almost as if she was a punished villain herself. Like she was a victim in this as much as Luisa was. And it was interesting to me why Ariadne had such a sort of kind of a forceful dismissal of her. You know, when when she escaped the room. Yeah. Anyway, so you went three and a half. I went three. Let's move on to locations. This is this is quite easy for me. Um, yeah. I thought this was a real strength of the story, although yes. although. Although we we are basically in England for Sunnyside Golf Course and Quarter Deck, Sunnydale, sorry for Sunnydale Golf Course and Quarter Deck, the story takes place in Greece exclusively. We got the open ocean. We've got Athens, uh, Vrakonisi. It's it's fictional, but it's enough real life to to certainly appear believable on the page. We know that it was yeah. at least in part based on a trip that uh, Kingsley Amos took with his wife um, in 1965, a couple of years previous to writing it. It wasn't just a backdrop for me in this story. I found it was a real tangible spot. And I didn't I did enjoy the linger the factor. Char- that we, talk, we talk a lot about lingering, Josh, in settings, and I felt like here we did it. Yes. And I liked that. I did have a problem though with interior spaces. I, I like my interior space decoration. They were vague. Um, they were vague. They were vague and a little underdone. So I can't go full marks I with could this. Not, but I could not visualize you know. Colonel Colonel Sun's house at all. I just couldn't visualize it. It's like no, there's even, a cellar even when Bond and there's a room. Wrecking. Yeah, and then there's cliffs. Where exactly is mm-hmm. Van Richter on top of the house firing his his mortar, or is he on a ridge? Yeah. Like to me, it was is he on a ridge clear. next it, to it. Yes, yeah, it, it, you're absolutely yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and, and like, in a sto- oh, in a story in a story, Josh, that depends so much on direction and on placement and on location and terrain, you would you would really hope to have almost almost like a a drone's view of things, you know. But you just hmm. don't get that. Like I'm I'm constantly no. guessing. Well, so this guy scrambled. Okay, so the guy who escaped the fire on the boat was up to the hospital on the top of the island. Did he go to? And then he scrambled down the cliff, but. How far are the roofs above the sea level? And like, I'm trying to figure it out. And I know that Fleming, Fleming's detail would have painted that. But I think the straight ahead action of the plot and that sort of propulsion with which Amos writes the story kind of bypasses some of these finer points of location writing that would have enabled us to capture, you know, the, the spots where Bond was hanging out. And ultimately, maybe it doesn't really matter, you know, if the story moves fast and we get A to B to C. But of course, the uh, you know, I like it's my location. Cherry on top, and yeah, I like my locations. And I thought that there was a lot of stuff done really, really well here on the macro level. Like maybe even better than Fleming in some places, but the micro stuff is underdone. And the hotel rooms are kind of bland. The restaurants not really described much. Like I Food know I'm supposed to be impressed. No, not at all. It's not a foodie adventure, is it? There's some nice stuff no. there. We get crayfish and stuff about the wine Uzo, and whatnot. We get the ouzo and the brandy. Yeah, but it's and, it's just not like it's that. not yeah. really jumping out. It's it's not a foodie no. adventure. Um, I went three Even and a I half can't... for my locations. I mean, it yeah, it was it was a good mark, but I really wanted to go. I wanted to go more because I loved being where I was, but I couldn't because for me personally, that lack of interior decoration on the page to suck me into those those sort of rooms i, I just didn't get it um i gave it a four for the locales um i agree with everything that you said i read that amos uh based a lot of his story from his trips to athens as well as to the slick to to the cyclitic isles uh you mm-hmm. know where and then, of course, he had to create Vrakonisi, this fictional island. And I want to point out that in terms of description, 
of, of the Rakanisi uh, spatially in his story. This is a fictional island that he created. So therefore, yeah. it's not going to have the same dynamic as, say, Athens, which I found that True despite, enough. you know, yeah. not being great on the interior spaces, not being great on the foodie aspect, I found that his de- I, I did enjoy his depiction of Athens. Like, geographically, he was on top of things. Um, mm-hmm. As you know, yes. I do a podcast on um, the Peloponnesian War. Uh, well, I'll be getting back to that later on, but mm-hmm. or soon, I should say. So I'm very familiar with Greece in that respect. And Athens, like he mentions, like the Acropolis, the Parthenon, he refers to the Piraeus, which is the harbor of Athens, the ancient harbor. He even mentions things like Cape Sunion and Attica. Like these are very familiar. Macro, uh, macro, macro. He's nailed macro, the macro. macro. Exactly. But he doesn't get into the micro. The micro. And no, that's y- it. You nailed it. I still like what I got overall, like. Yeah, but me too. Three and a half and a four was what I was veering between, but I'll stick mm-hmm. with my four just because I really like seeing Greece portrayed in, in a certain way. I liked all the mythology, so even though yeah. even though it was expository. I liked the myth. It was nice. The mythology it was nice. About that. Yeah. Throwing in Theseus mm-hmm. and Ariadne, and yep. you kind of think I always had this visualization, you know, that if you think of um, if you think of uh, the you know the island of Rakonisi in the Cyclades. You're thinking mm-hmm. also possibly of like on Crete, you're thinking of uh, the, the, the Minotaur and you can always mm-hmm. look at Colonel Sun as being like this, the monster in the maze and Ariadne is the girl yep. who yep. gives Theseus the string and the rope to find her way back. Of course, Theseus screws over Ariadne terribly in this story. Bond doesn't mm-hmm. though. So it's almost like That's it's right. a correction of that old myth in a way. And I kind of liked how he played with that, presenting the mythology in a modern sense and tying that into the story, which also gave life to the locales a little bit. But How much of that is your end, goodwill, Josh, because you want to read into that? How much of it will be over a reader's head who's just picking up this yes. story and doesn't know a lot about Greece? You know? Exactly, exactly. Hence why I veer between three and a half and a four. Mm. So I'm just going to stay with my four. But at the same time, yeah. if you're... In, yeah, I think every Bond novel, if he goes to different locales, you're going to find a part of those novels very interesting to you because you've been there and yes, you're familiar course, with the yeah. culture and the history. But then again, you also have to kind of streamline it for everyone else so that they can also feel it. So they can also enjoy the food that they, not just the drinks and not just the food, but also, you know, the, the spaces in which they go. And, 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 and you don't want them to feel like, you know, that every scene in this book is just like a map painting in the background. And then, and then like, there's bare Spartan uh, living quarters for every character, you know, as it seems to be. <laughs> yeah. Like, everyone yeah. to me seems to be, almost, I almost visualize them as if, like, it's like on Santorini where everything is white chalk. And it just kind yeah. of feels like they're all in these white chalk rooms and there's no... Uh, decor- there's no decor, there's no kind mm-hmm. of maison scène to um, suggest characterization or any sort of like um, symbolism or anything like that. It's just as it is. And yeah. it's a very, it's a travelogue, yes. It is, that is in the Fleming tradition. But to me, it's lacking something. And I, I think you nailed it right there. It, it's lacking also these buffering moments that we we would get in the travel logs that Fleming's offered us before, which is where we get to see Bond on the plane or in the airport worried or, you know, smoking his cigarettes because he's nervous or there's turbulence, you know, and he hates the plane, the character writing, all of that stuff comes out through the travel. Whereas here, it's like Bond was here and then Bond starts the next chapter here. He's sitting and, you know, it it, 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 it is just point a Point A to point B. Quick, Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, it's it's not bad. It's not bad. It's backdrops, no. though. Yes, it's backdrops. 
Uh, if, so if Ian Fleming went to the Greek islands and he did a story similar to this, you know you get a lot more, there'd be a lot more stuff to, you know, sink your teeth into mm-hmm. in this story if that was the case. Mm-hmm. But I think a four is a very generous mark. My three and a half stands as well. I, I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not bad at writing places. He's just, he bypasses details that I think some of the more, um, some of the more subscriptive fans would really like to to have. I think that's maybe just, that. that's just it. Uh, what about equipment? To me, this was a bit like Skyfall, Josh. You know, you got a radio transmitter and a gun. <laughs> you got to rely on your wits. And that's grenades that's and a Thompson submachine gun, a knife. Well, he, he gets lucky to have right, those. He right, didn't. Well, he didn't go in with them. I mean, he, he gets those because Litsas has a personal armory. Yeah, exactly. And he doesn't get them because he chartered the boat. No, he doesn't. But but he still ends up, you know, having those tools at hand, and it's very yeah, basic. And, that's and we use them. Very stripped down, very basic. No Q branch to to no. to uh, help him out here. He's just on mm-hmm. his own. And I think the equipment lends to the um, uniqueness of this particular Bond narrative of mm-hmm. the raw feeling of action this story gives that kind of made it very exciting, despite you know flaws in character and in the plot. Um, yeah, this it, it element was, it was cool. This that element. Way was very strong for me. I like I liked kind of like this the, the pared down bond in this. Uh, it was nice because we weren't waiting yeah. for like oh when's he going to use that gadget or what's he going to do with that tool. And and that was cool. Like we got to we just got to see the action bond. And this is like a good Dalton action bond. Like there is a lot of that Dalton feel to this story. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also interesting in context of what you said about that stripped down equipment, that so much of the story is spent, at least from the uh, Allies' point of view, in fear of atomic war, and then it turns out to be a trench mortar. You know, that that's kind of like a, a moment, too. Yeah, there's interesting, like, and this seems almost like he goes back in time a little bit. He brings in, like, you know, communists and Nazis and and goes back to World War II weaponry. Like, mm-hmm. he was really yeah. almost going back to, like, not just World War II, but World War I here. And mm-hmm. I have to admit, Scott, I struggled with this particular ranking because, do I mean, I gave it a three mm-hmm. because <laughs> if you compare it to other stories, the equipment's a lot mm-hmm. more interesting. And this one here, it's, it's like, it's basic, but it works for the story as well. But it... I guess they were effective in terms of the narrative, even though like they got captured in th- near the end uh, before the climax. So they didn't really even use those weapons in a sense. Yeah. yeah. So that's right. I, mean, I don't know. You're, you're right. To I just had, I, str- right I struggled to how to review this. You think about a story like Moonraker, right? Like Bond uses equipment there, like the fire, um, or sorry, the, the it's the flame, the little mini flamethrower, right? isn't it? When he's locked up and he burns the ropes, you've got, um, then you have more bombastic use of tech of technology in in stories where Q Branch has a real hands on thing, but here it's just Bond on an adventure. It's more like a short story uh, feel, you know, yeah, not so like a. It's like an extended short story feel, or like a novella, or something along mm, those lines. Yeah, Bond's not relying on Q Branch because the motivating incident is just quick and get out there, you know. But it is at the same time. Interesting that Q Branch didn't have more of a hand in this scene, seen as Bond. Well, then again, they're just, they're chasing the kidnapping and they're moving as quickly as they can. So they're not like really setting this up as a mission and here's all your stuff you're going to need and meet your point man here and he'll sort you out with what you need. No, it's just Bond's going to get caught. That's what he's doing. He's traveling to Athens to get captured by the bad guys who will lead him to M, right? I mean, that that's the whole gist of it at the, at the, at the start. So perhaps... 
going with all sorts of equipment. I don't know. It's it's just weird because he is at the same time given um, what's his face Thomas's connection, the Welshman who's head of Station G. Um, you don't even anyway, really yeah, see, it's, it's you odd. Just hear about him. No, you don't yeah. even see. Yeah, you hear about him, and then he gets burnt out in a fire. Um, it's just kind of sad because he seemed like an interesting character the way he was at least described to us. Yeah. But I mean, More would equipment. you consider the Altair? Would you consider the Altair equipment? I, it is. I mean, it, it's a ship, so standard. Yeah, it's no wave crest, though, is it? <laughs> no wave crest. But I, I, also, too, I mean, okay, so we have the pistol, the knife, the Altair, the Lee Enfield rifle, mm-hmm. Thompson submachine gun. But you also have, of course, the torture equipment that Sun yeah, uses. Yeah, the torture equipment, yeah. The yeah. skewers. We, that if, we bring that, if we bring that in. Yeah, that's true. I think three and a half, or, you know, I think it's a fair marking overall, I think, for the equipment. What did you give it? I gave it a three. Um, for much the same reason, I didn't really know, like where I I liked it. I liked it that Bond had to rely on his wits, and I liked that the grenades came into play. You know where he burnt out the engine in the boat, and he he used. Did he even use the radio transmitter? I can't even recall. I can't recall either. No, that was a bit of a false a false lead. Because the Calvary doesn't show up at the end, they resolve the situation yeah. themselves. That's right, yeah. It's just not a story that people who like equipment or gadgets are really going to get off on. It's not, I would say, if you're a fan, if you haven't read any of the Fleming novels and you're a fan of the Bond films, you probably wouldn't enjoy this story as much yeah, as that's say, a very, someone... Yeah, that's a good shout, yeah. Like, like um, as someone who has read the Bond novels or mm-hmm. prefers more sort of like more spycraft, realistic spycraft in their in their spy stories. Yeah, this is a quick reactionary driven plot that happens from impulse to impulse. This isn't really like a mission. And, you know, Bond is just seat of his pants movements here and he's getting lucky. And that, you know, was one of the things I think in summation that I might say about Colonel Sun that I find it interesting that there's a real mixture of bad luck. If you think of like Arensky's involvement and how that showcases the position of the boat. And good yep. luck here with Louisa and Loman's support at the end turning. You know, this this mixture of bad luck and chance um, really helps to make the events in the plot balanced and kind of surprised in their suspense. You know, like, I, I think that's an interesting part to the writing that this isn't a mission. For sure. It's Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. That That's the verisimilitude that you cited earlier. It's not just like, I'm James Bond, this is what I'm going to do, and it's going to be tough, and I'm going to get beaten up, but of course I'm going to win it. He doesn't go in there and execute A to B to C to D and get beaten up along the way, but cross the finish line. He just moves from A to whatever's next, and that turns out to be B. And it, it is very, like, seat of your pants type stuff. And I think you're yeah. right. If you're a fan of the movies that have the gadgets and the sort of set-piece stunts and plans and narrative that sets you up for the long haul, this will not impress you much. I think Colonel Sun will disappoint you because it, it's much more Bond out, quickly the motivating incident is quick m is kidnapped he's got to go after stuff and it's reacting 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 always reacting Reacting, yeah the only time he he's ahead of the game and he's never really ahead of the game but the only time we as readers feel like he is is when he's doing preparations with uh, litsas and ariadne on on board the altair and even some of that is given to us through exposition so you know like george ionides you know anyway it's you know what 
Colonel Sun's a good book. I enjoyed reading it and I enjoyed talking about it with you. And I do think there's something in here for Bond fans. Amos is a good writer. There are some really fun moments in the story. Um, it's better than some of, in my opinion, it's better than some of Fleming's worst. Um, but it's not anywhere as near as good as Fleming's good ones. So no. I think I think for me, what was I? Three and a half, three and a half, three. So that's ten, seven. I was sixteen and a half for this story, and you, my friend, were uh, seventeen for this story. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm satisfied with that grade. I think it's uh, worthy. Here's mm-hmm. a question: What mm. you mentioned? We mentioned Dalton, but if we were to get into it, who, what Bond do you think this story would be suitable for? I think Dalton. I think this is a maybe I think Craig. This is, maybe Craig. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, Craig has the strongest relationship with his leader, you know, with M. So I can see this being something he would go out and do. But Dalton has got the revenge flair and the, mm. the stiffness. And I think that if there's a reactionary bond out there, it's uh, it's Dalton. You know, I mean, Roger Moore's got everything planned right down to his shoelaces when he leaves the apartment. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. If if you like Spectre and its torture scene, you like the final act of this story. Yeah, maybe. Even though Colonel Sun says that uh, hitting the testicles is too obvious. Yeah. I was just thinking, you know, if you think about Waltz's uh, performance in Spectre, I, now that I read Colonel Sun, I'm seeing a lot of similarities in my, in mannerisms and, and like his mm-hmm. his sort of his... his um, his countenance, you know, and how he talks and, and whatnot. Yeah. And right. I, I kind of well, see the, a similarity the diction. to that. Yeah. The diction. The diction yeah. and dialogue. Like I said, Spectre, if you look at the end credits of Spectre, they do credit the Kingsley Amos estate. Right. You mentioned that. They, they, they pluck bits of this book for that story. So, yeah. This was nice getting back on the horse, uh, the literary gun barrel. It was a good time doing this, and we've got From Russia With Love coming up later this season, possibly the start of next season. We'll see how the structure goes. So have you got any closing remarks then? Overall, this was really fun to get back behind the literary gun barrel. You know, we got in his crosshairs. Mm-hmm. We took the shot. I think we did a good job with Colonel Sun. Uh, maybe down the road we'll get in more non-Fleming Bond books and uh, like know, as a diversion yeah. every now and then. I think it would be fun, mm-hmm. reminding us that we are still a Bond podcast until, of course, No Time to Die comes out. Yeah. And we've got a couple of great episodes coming up on Bond by Numbers. So after this, we are welcoming Chris Wood back to the show. Bond on Vinyl will be with us uh, for a a stroke-by-stroke look through the music of uh, The World Is Not Enough. And and he's had quite a lot going on in his little corner of the Bond universe. So it'll be good to catch up with Chris and welcome him back to the show. Anyway, look, pal, it's it's been fun. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, as always, you can check us out on the socials. if, uh, if you've got opinions on Colonel Sun or anything else that you've uh, heard us talk about this season or would just like to share us your thoughts, then you can email us on bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook and uh, check us out on the socials. We love interacting with our guests and thanks everybody for your support. It's great to be, uh, it's great to still be producing content in this wonderful, wonderful community of uh, Bond supporters and fans. So, Uh, Looking forward to our next episode. Looking forward to our next episode, buddy. And uh, thanks for going down the literary gun barrel with me today. Yesu. (laughs) Yesu.